That's the lesson for today. The coming of our Jesus, our coming King, encourages us to holy living and hopeful living. And so I want to take you to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I just want to break these two themes down. Holy living and hopeful living. And we're just going to walk through the chapter here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. With the idea that if we look toward Jesus and his second coming, it will help us prepare for his first coming that we're celebrating this week. And so, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's on page 957 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you want to follow in that Pew Bible, or if you want to um, pull your phone out, whatever you need to do is fine, but follow along, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So he says, this is the Apostle Paul writing to this church that he really loves. He says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. Is that something that you want to do? You wouldn't be at church if you didn't want to please God. Let's be honest. So I just want to congratulate you that you want to please God, that you really want to trust His ways. Thank you. So if he says you're, in fact, to please God. In fact, as you are doing. Now we ask you and urge. That's the word for encourage. There's three times we'll see this word for encourage in our text. It's in verse 1, verse 10, and the last verse of our chapter, verse 18. We'll see it in urge. We'll also see it in encourage. But he says, we urge you in the Lord to do this more and more. Two times he's going to say this phrase, more and more. The first time it's right here where he's saying, love God more and more. Other time, or it's going to be later on, in verse 10, he's going to say, I urge you to love your brothers and sisters more and more. So we get in this theme of holy living is, in, is, is something that we can grow in more and more. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of our Lord Jesus. Remember, Lord shows up multiple times in these letters to Thessalonians, more than any other place really in the New Testament. God has authority through Jesus Christ. Here it is, verse 3. You want to know what God's will for your life is? Are you ready? This is the million-dollar question. What is God's will for my life? Verse 3 is one of the answers to that question. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. When's the last time you've used that in a sentence? Sanctified. It's where we get the word. It's, It's holy. It's pure clean so we don't want to walk around with all those black marks on our hands or in our souls we need someone to help us be clean to be set apart for a specific purpose some of you are going to have a fancy meal here in the next week aren't you and there's going to be those dishes that are going to come out of the cabinet once a year aren't they those dishes are sanctified You're thinking, preacher, you're crazy. No, they are set aside for a specific purpose, right? You don't put Taco Bell on those dishes, do you? No, the Christmas ham and the the green bean casserole and the fluffy jello dessert, that's what goes on those dishes, right? And maybe the pumpkin or the pecan pie. That's what goes on those dishes once a year because they are set aside for a specific purpose. They are sanctified. And so God says, I have a will for you. It is to be sanctified. You are set apart for a specific purpose. What's the purpose? Keep reading. He'll tell you some. It's God's will for you that you should be sanctified, that you should should avoid sexual immorality, 
that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that this matter should... And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For this, for God did the, verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying, don't get mad at me. These are God's words. So he says, this is God's will for you to avoid sexual immorality. That you should be holy. This phrase for sexual immorality is where we get our word pornography. It has its roots with slavery someone sold as a slave and it really morphed into prostitution but this word for sexual immorality is just anything outside sexually besides the husband and wife marriage relationship anything outside of that is what he's describing as sexual immorality let me share a poem with you from alexander pope how many of you have heard of this guy Wow, I'm impressed more than I thought. Okay, so Alexander Pope. People say that there's William Shakespeare and then there's Alexander Pope. I read that this week. Here's what he has in one of his poems 300 years ago. And I'm going to have to read it to you and then I'm going to have to explain it to you because it's old English. He says, Vice is a monster of such frightful mean. The word mean means appearance. Vice is bad. There's vices and there's virtues. Virtues are good habits. Vices are bad. Sin. So vice or sin is a monster that is a frightful appearance. He's scary. That to be hated need be but seen. When you see that monster, you are scared. When you see that sin, you hate it. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face. First we endure, then pity, then embrace. Do you see what he's saying 300 years ago? The bad stuff, we're scared of it. And we see it and we hate it. But the more we see it, the more familiar we become. And then we just kind of endure it. And then we feel sorry for it. And then we hug it. Generations ago, they would have said, males don't marry males. They don't, it's, that's not what God wants. First we endure, then we pity, then we embrace. It's God's will for you to be sanctified, to avoid sexual immorality. And that's what he's talking about. We've got a group of men, and I'm calling our young fellows men today too. Because they get up at 6.30 in the morning on Wednesdays before school to read and study the Bible and to become the men we need. And so I invite fellows, if you want to, get up if you're able. And I realize you've got to work, so you're not a bad Christian if you can't do this, so it's okay. 
Uh, but there's a group that's meeting, so if you want to do this, uh, we're going through this book, The Men We Need. 6.30 Wednesdays at Subway. Uh, right now, Mike Pippen, Rick Carr doing it. It's just really nice that I can just go and be one of the guys. I'm not responsible to be in charge. It's really nice. Uh, so we're going through this book called The Men We Need. And it's by Brant Hansen. He's a Christian. And... Uh, actually from Illinois even, and he has a radio show. I don't know if he still does, but the chapter, spoiler alert, fellas, I'm going to talk about this week's reading for just a minute, okay? So you should still come to the group because this might spark some more conversation, but this week's chapter heading, he calls, don't live with a woman unless she's your wife. I don't know why you're laughing. Uh, He says, I had a conversation with a caller on my radio show. He says, I live with my girlfriend and our son. We know we're going to get married someday, so what's the difference? It's just a piece of paper. He says, honest question, what's stopping you from getting married? What do you mean? I mean, honestly, what's stopping you from marrying her right now? He said, I was genuinely curious. You say you're committed to her. You're giving your body and taking hers. So why not take a vow in front of her family and friends and yours? Finances, I guess. But you live together. What's more expensive about living together as a married couple? I don't know. He said, I mean, I just want to make sure I can provide for her and her son. So you've got a son with her. Yeah, he's two. You say you want to provide for her. Here he is. Why not provide for him and his mom the security of a man who is never going to leave? Why are you writing checks with your body that your soul won't cash? Hadn't thought about that way. I think you're right. Really? Yeah, I think you're right. I think I just didn't want to take responsibility and step up. I love you all, but maybe there's some that need to take responsibility and step up today. Here's what this is all about. Our relationship with husband and wife is our relationship with us and God. You go to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1, 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You are created in the image of God. Male and female. God gave you your gender. Male and female. And then later on, he says in chapter 2 of Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll create a helper for him. And the only other person in all of Scripture is called a helper is the Holy Spirit of God. So he brings this first bride to Adam. Dads who've walked your daughters down the aisle, God knows what it's like. He gave away the first bride and Eve. So God brought Eve to her husband and gave her away. And there's that picture in the opening pages of Scripture of this is what it's supposed to look like. Man and woman together forever. That's what God wants. And then you read throughout the Old Testament and when God's people walk away from Him, God uses words like adultery 
and prostitution. They prostituted themselves with other gods. There's this holy relationship between us and God, and it's a lot like a marriage. And then you see Jesus show up, and where does his first, where does his first miracle take place? At a wedding when he changes water to wine. And you go into Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. Jesus gives the definition of marriage. It's on page 800 in your Bible. These, there's this question about divorce and things going on. And here's what he says. Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let man, let no one separate. Those are the words of Jesus defining marriage for us. It's God's will for you to be sanctified, to avoid sexual immorality because our relationships with one another represents our relationship with God. You know what heaven's described like? You go to Revelation 21, 1 through 3. And the Apostle John has this vision. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. From start to finish, we have this beautiful picture of God loving his people, much like a husband loves his bride. That's why this is so important to us as followers of Jesus, is that our marriages represent God's love for us. So it's not just about doing the right thing. It's about God's love for us. He says it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Each of you should learn to control their own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans, who do not know God. Followers of Jesus, we act differently than those who do not claim to follow Jesus. He urges and encourages us more and more. The good news, he says in verse 18, verse 8, therefore anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. You don't have to do this on your own power. The Holy Spirit is there to help you. You flip the page to chapter 519 and he says, don't quench the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit help you and follow God's words. Our coming King encourages us to holy living with our relationships and also with our work with one another. You go to verses 9 through 12. Now about your love for one another, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. To make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anyone. So after he talks about sex, he's, now he's going to talk about money a little bit. 
He's just really catching it all today, isn't he? But he's saying in your relationships with one another, just love each other. And you're doing that. That's good. Do so more and more. And then he says, you know, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your hands just as we told you. Have you thought about it, followers of Jesus, that your witness in the workplace is a great opportunity for God to advance the kingdom? Have you thought about when you go to work, you're on mission for God? Yeah, you've got an employer to, to, to report to and, and honor and respect, but you've got an opportunity in front of you, a mission that God can use. So, so lead quiet lives. Don't be a busybody. When there's break time and the conversation turns to talking about people and gossiping, do you enter in or do you walk away? Or do you ask the question, I wonder how so-and-so is thinking about this right now. And he says, just work with your hands. He says, the reason why? Verse 12, your daily life will win the respect of outsiders. Don't you want people to respect you? The way you interact with people and the way you conduct your business will either gain respect or not, will draw people closer to Jesus or further away. And he says, then you won't be dependent on anybody. You'll have resources to take care of your family, to bless the church, to help unreached people groups understand the scriptures in their own language. So I'm thankful that he turns his attention to just daily life that our work, when we go to the workplace or the warehouse, is just as important as how we live and follow Jesus in our own house. Win the respect. We prayed last week at the end of chapter 3, verse 13. May God strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God and family and God and Father, when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones, Jesus encourages us to holy living and hopeful living. And in chapter 4, verse 13, we turn the corner toward hopeful living. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is second coming talk. This is like he's finally getting to this whole second coming and we're spending lots of time when Jesus comes. But he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. Do you understand what that means? That it's, it's the Bible's way of saying those who have died. Uh, let me put this in contemporary language for us. So a few weeks ago, I had a deer hanging in my garage. One of my dear friends brought me a deer that he had taking care of in hunting season. Is that a polite way to say it? Do you understand what the deer? Okay. So the deer's hanging in my garage. 
And we've got some little ones that my wife watches and says, hey, you guys want to see a deer? So I'm taking these little kids out to see the deer. I mean, who doesn't like a deer? I mean, it's getting close to Christmas time. And so uh, I said, hey, uh, there's the deer. And they're like, is the deer sleeping? Yes, the deer is asleep. When's it going to wake up? I said, well, here, it's already been field dressed. It's not waking up. So I said, this deer is dead. Uh, we're going to put it in our freezer after we run it through the meat grinder. And so for a while, they, she just kept wondering, when's the deer going to wake up? When's it? The deer is asleep. And so the Bible talks about uh, those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. John chapter 11, Jesus gets the word, hey, your dear friend Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. He delays, and eventually, Lazarus is dead. And Jesus says to his disciples, hey, Lazarus has fallen asleep. We're going to go and wake him up. And the disciples say, well, hey, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. And he's like, okay, guys, you don't get it. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that you weren't here because we're going to see a miracle today, and we're going to see the glory of God. And so they go to the tomb, and it says that Jesus wept. Shortest verse in English Bible. Jesus wept, and he said it was on another occasion. There, he's deeply moved. Christians, it's okay to grieve when our loved ones die. It's okay to cry. Cry healthy tears. But Paul says we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Godly men buried that first Christian martyr with a witness for his faith. Stephen, in Acts chapter 8, verse 2, it says, Godly men buried Stephen with great mourning. Both of these, first, these examples are men crying when their loved ones die. We grieve, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope. I know in this room today, you've had to bury your loved ones this year. It's hard, and we're with you. We pledge our support to you. We love you. But we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Just like the way we live in our marriages and conduct our lives sexually, not like the pagans, we don't grieve like the pagans. I've been to funerals and I've led funerals for Christians and non-Christians. They're different they're different. Much like I can see uh, when that bride comes down and, and if I know that that's been a, a holy moment for them or if there's some stories there. Still equally loved by God, but you can tell the difference. So we grieve, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Ben Witherington writes, Paul is assuming that for Christians an increase in hope will cause an increase in holiness in the lives of the believers. He says, I want you to grieve, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? That is the foundation of our faith. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. What we believe about Jesus is going to take care of what we believe about the afterlife. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, then you can say, I'm with him. I'm with the guy who walked out of the grave. I think he's going to take care of me in the next life too. So 
we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you, we who are still alive and are left are, until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. It sounds like maybe the Thessalonian church were think, thinking, you know, Jesus is supposed to be coming back soon. Our loved ones are dying. He still hasn't come back. What's going on? He says, you know, we who are still alive will not precede. Verse 30, where it says, this then will appear the sign of the Son of Man, and all the peoples on the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with the power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Maybe that's some of what's happening here. But we have hope that we will be with the Lord forever. Reminds me of the shepherd's psalm. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The coming of our King leads us to hopeful living. We have hope. And as we think about the second coming, compare it to the first coming, both come down from heaven. First time as a baby. Next time as a victorious king, both had angelic announcements, right? The company of the heavenly hosts, peace on earth, goodwill toward man. Got this voice of the archangel calling out. We will be with the Lord forever. One of my favorite books, our series of books, is the Chronicles of Narnia. I asked my daughter, Hope, should I use this or not? She says, use it. So I'm like, okay. So it's the last page of the last book of the series called The Last Battle. And if you know the books, uh, there's this great big lion named Aslan. And he sounds and talks and seems to be a lot like Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And... At the very end, Aslan finally comes. Finally. And Lucy's afraid that Aslan's going to send her away from Narnia back to real life in the real world because they love their adventures in this beautiful, magical place of Narnia. And she was afraid that he was going to send her back when he finally comes. No fear of that, he says. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your mother and father and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And as for this, as for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. 
All their life in Narnia and this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one, er no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Our king is coming. And he's coming soon. And our king encourages us to holy and hopeful living. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. <laughs>